All right. Well, welcome, everybody. Uh, you probably remember, because we mentioned it last week, but maybe you didn't remember or you weren't here, but I bet when you walked in and you saw a giant horse trough on the floor full of water, you realized we were doing something a little bit different tonight, um, at least for a little bit. We're going to start uh, the service by doing some baptisms. Yeah. It's worth clapping. So before we get started with that, Mike asked me to just to kind of give a quick, like, what is that uh, talk? Because if you, maybe, you know, if you didn't grow up in church, um, or historically you've been to a church that doesn't explain what baptism is, it can kind of be, you know, a little weird um, or confusing sounding. I mean, you've got, you know, you put somebody in a tub of water, and you push them under it, and they come out of it, and everybody claps, and... It's just kind of a strange, you know, kind of seem like a strange thing. So we want to explain what it is we're doing. Um, and I'll do it this way. Uh, there's, if you think about it, there's a difference between a sign and a symbol. Uh, we use those words interchangeably most of the time, but they're actually, if you get real dorky about it, there's a difference between a sign and a symbol. A sign uh, just communicates information, but there's no real connection with uh, anything. Uh, so, for example, when you come up to a stoplight um, or you're driving down the street and the light turns red, you know to stop, right? But there's no intrinsic connection with... What's that? Something about the cops. <laughs> I appreciate that a lot, yeah. Um, so, point I'm trying to make, right, there's, there's no connection between the color red and actually stopping. It's just, it's kind of cultural, we learned it, right? There's no intrinsic connection there. A symbol is different in the sense that, uh, like a sign, a symbol communicates information, but a symbol also represents something. So a symbol goes a bit deeper. A symbol uh, has an intrinsic connection, uh, and it points to a reality. If you think about a railroad crossing signpost, you know, there's, there's the truth being communicated there with the railroad crossing, but it also is indicating the reality of a railroad crossing in the road. So it's, it's representative of something. So the symbol goes a bit uh, deeper. So I'll, I'll say it as simply as I can. A, a sign uh, tells information, and a symbol represents something. And so that's the whole point I'm trying to make, is that baptism is not just a sign, but it's a symbol. Uh, there is a connection going on. Uh, when you do baptism, there's uh, this intrinsic uh, natural connection to a spiritual reality that is going on. Um, and so what you're about to see uh, when we do baptism, somebody's going to be immersed in the water, and then they're going to be brought back out of the water. And what this represents is the, you know, the person is immersed, and there's this connection there of uh, somebody dying with Christ, and then they are raised out of the water, and it's this connection of somebody being raised with Christ, sharing in the power of Christ's resurrection, being washed of their sins, uh, and being given uh, a power in the Holy Spirit to live a new life in relationship with Jesus. So, yeah, woo, that's a good, that's a good woo moment. Um, so that's what baptism is. And 
it, it's a symbol of a spiritual reality which has already happened. So the folks getting baptized tonight understand that this does not, you know, the act doesn't bring salvation or regeneration, but instead uh, it's a representation, it's a symbol of an inward spiritual reality. Um, there's a guy named James Denny. I don't know who he was, but he said, baptism and faith are but... Uh, the outside and the inside of the same thing. So the folks getting baptized tonight have already made a, uh, uh, they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, they've been in relationship with him, and now they're going to profess that through the act of getting baptized here at SCUM. Um, and lastly, baptism also, you know, being uh, coming into union with Jesus also means that you're coming into uh, a connection with his body, the church. And so uh, not only a profession of personal individual faith, but it's this kind of corporate recognition that, um, you know, you're stepping into the church and being a part of the church community. So we have two folks getting baptized this evening, Brian Poskin and Katie Jones, who I believe goes by Jonesy. Is that right? I didn't ask you that, Katie. Yeah, Jonesy's good. Um, so they, what's going to happen, they're going to come forward. They're going to share just a little about their own faith journey. And then they will go through the baptismal deal. Uh, so I'm going to pray, actually, and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity, for what baptism symbolizes, what it represents, God, that um, Brian and Katie both have chosen to enter into a relationship with you and trust you for the forgiveness of their sins and uh, trust in your spirit and have your spirit um, to live a new life in relationship with you. We thank you for that truth, and uh, we pray that you would bless just this time that we have to share with them. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So if, uh, Brian, if you want to come up, I will get out of the way. Hi, uh, my name is Brian. I've been a Christian for um, a good amount of time. When I was baptized as an infant, I don't really remember too well. So I decided tonight to kind of <clears throat> take my faith more seriously. So I've decided to be rebaptized under my own will as I'm not an infant anymore. So that's it. Jonesy, you want to come up? Hi. Um, I'm Katie. I've been a Christian since about college, or not very long, but um, I decided to get baptized because I feel like Jesus calls us to that. And I, I like the First Peter 3.21. says it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. And I think that sounds really nice. So I want to get baptized.
Well, it's all wet up here. It's great. So, if um, you've been here the last few weeks, then you know that we have just completed a short series on the state of scum. And I would encourage you to go to the website. You can hear podcast versions of that if you'd like to. And so we're heading in a new direction now. We're heading actually toward a study of the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippi is a city in northern Greece in an area called Thessalonica, Thessaloniki. And um, the Apostle Paul is the guy who actually first brought the gospel to northern Greece. And so I thought maybe it would be good to talk a little bit about about the Apostle Paul, who unfortunately I think has fallen on somewhat hard times when it comes to popular opinion. People label him as a misogynist or as a very narrow-minded, religious, bigot type. And he's gotten a bad rap in the last several years, which I think is undeserved. So I thought I'd start off by talking about his conversion. That conversion, that's a strange word, usually means to go from one state of mind to another state of mind. So Christianity is a religion of conversion. And that's actually what gets us in trouble with everybody. Because we have the audacity to say that Jesus Christ was right when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Those are fighting words if you're a Muslim, if you're a Buddhist, if you're a Hindu, if you're from traditional village religion in any part of the world. For someone to make those kinds of claims and say, basically, I'm it, is basically to say, you're wrong. And so Christians have been involved in what we call, you know, trying to convert people for a couple thousand years now. The current word for it is proselytizing. No proselytizing. You can't proselytize. Well, Christians can't stop but proselytize. How do you expect me to be quiet about the new life that I found in Christ? How can I be silent? If I am silent, even the very stones would cry out about the wonders of God's love as exhibited in Jesus Christ. Christianity is a converting religion. In a land... We currently live, the backlash against Christianity is kind of a backhanded compliment to us. Very rarely will Christians get a fair shake. You got to shut up. I mean, 
really, seriously, if you're a teacher and you're talking about transcendental meditation in the high school, or you're talking about Islam, or you're talking about um, Buddhism or Hinduism or yoga or anything you want to talk about, usually nobody creates a fuss until you start talking about Jesus. Keep those Christmas carols out of our holiday winter celebration. Why are they so afraid? They're afraid because people actually believe this stuff. That's why they're afraid. They're afraid because Christians say, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to the Father. We make people nervous. We believe it's true not just for us, but it's true for everybody. It doesn't matter what part of the world you come from. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what gender you are. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the, and the life. Now, people who understand this about Christianity see it as a threat. And if they don't see this about Christianity, then they're simply not looking. Saul of Tarsus was one such man. He was a devout Jewish man. And he saw this new Christian religion as threatening to dismantle everything he had ever studied, all the traditions of his forefathers, and he was not going to let that happen. Very, very early in the history of the church, Christians were starting to be persecuted. The very first martyr for the Christian faith was a man named Stephen, who was literally stoned to death because he believed in Jesus. And Saul of Tarsus was in full agreement with this and was actually holding the coats of those men who took their coats off so they could get a better shot at killing Stephen. After that, Saul of Tarsus decided that he was going to start to arrest any Christian in Jerusalem that he could get his hands on. And then in Acts chapter 9, he says, that's not far enough. I'm going to go 150 miles away to the next big city, Damascus, and I'm going to start to arrest Christians there. And we're going to pick up our reading today from Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. should be on the wall in front of you or behind you if you're sitting on the floor. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to, quote-unquote, the way, that was what they called Christianity back then, the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Okay, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around this kind of thing because it doesn't happen here. We have freedom of religion here. It wasn't so back then. Living in Israel at that time was more like being 
in a Muslim country under Sharia law than it is like being in the United States of America under democracy. So you could actually go to the authorities and you could get papers to arrest people because they didn't think the right way about God. And you could throw them in prison and you could kill them. So this is what the young Saul of Tarsus was doing. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This man was in dire straits. He's going to do what he thinks is the right thing to do for his God and his religion. He was 100% sure he was doing the right thing. He was as sure he was doing the right thing as the men who hijacked the planes on September 11th and flew them into the Twin Towers or into the Pentagon. He was that Sure, he was doing the right thing. But on his way, a light shines from heaven, knocks him off of his donkey. He is on the ground, and he hears a voice. And the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who is this? And Jesus identifies himself. Now, if you're Saul at this point, you might be thinking, I haven't done a thing to you, Jesus. I just hate your followers. I'm cool with you, Jesus, but it's your followers I can't stand. I like Jesus, but not religion. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking at that particular point. But Jesus was taking it personally. It's not business. It's personal, Saul. You hurt my people. You hurt me. Now, let me just say this. I know that, you know, the I hate religion but love Jesus video thing has gone viral with like 8 million hits on YouTube. But, you know, for as great of a poet as that guy is, for as much passion as he has, he's not defining terms very, very well. Because on the one hand, he says he loves the church. On the other hand, he says he hates religion. And I'm going, how can you separate those? I just don't get it. And I think you need to do a little bit more semantic homework before he posted his video. My opinion, love his heart. 
love is passion. I would like to take him to task as an English teacher about his definitions and semantics since I used to be an English teacher. So Jesus is taking this personally. Then Jesus gives him orders. Verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. This guy is in fasting mode, like he is in full-on, I'm fasting, I don't know what's going on, I don't know why Jesus would appear to me. I didn't believe that Jesus was still around. I thought he was dead. All of a sudden, he's alive, and he's supernaturally made me blind and knocked me off my horse. This guy has got to be in, like, world's colliding mode. This is the beginning of his conversion from one way of thinking to another way of thinking, and he needs some time, a space to seek God and and to mourn whatever it is he's been doing that has been wrong. He seeks God with prayer and fasting for three days. you got to love that, even though the guy was dangerous. Now, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias. That would be you. Come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Now, I love Ananias. Why? Because Jesus appears to him and he starts an argument with Jesus. Wait a minute, Jesus. Okay, I've prayed a long time to you and you've never appeared to me, right? Now, all of a sudden, you appear to me out of the blue. You tell me to go to this guy's house who's going to kill me. And the fact that Ananias could respond to Jesus in that honest of a fashion, I appreciate. But Jesus has got his mind made up. Jesus says, go. That's what it says. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. This is not the sweet little tiny baby Jesus crying in the manger. This is not Jesus, the good teacher that everybody loves because he talks about doing good to people, the golden rule, love one another, you know. This is Jesus, the Lord. And even though Ananias is his servant, his younger brother in the faith, He is being the boss. 
And he says, go. And let me tell you why. Because Paul already knows you're coming. Because I've told him. He's waiting for you. So let's quit arguing and get to it. My own expanded version of the text. And Jesus says, I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name. You know, that's a sentence you never want to hear from Jesus. I will show him how much he's going to have to suffer for my name. So, you know, next time you want to take pot shots at the Apostle Paul, who is actually Saul of Tarsus. Did you know that Paul means little one? That he took the name Paul because it meant little? While Saul is a kingly name in the history of the Jewish nation. So he changes his name from big, giant, kingly Saul to little, tiny Paul. Give the guy some slack. He's doing the best he can. And Jesus said, it ain't going to be easy for you. You're going to suffer. Obviously, Paul had caused some suffering. My guess is he probably thought he deserved it. But even if he didn't, we're all called to bear the suffering for the name on occasion. Verse 17. Ananias is, he's a hero, man. So then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, which is important if you're, if you're blind, I think. You know, it, it, it's a point of connection. Ananias can't be seen. He said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. Ananias is a guy who learns his lesson well. Not you, murderer Saul. Not you, tool, you douchebag. Brother Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. He got up and was baptized. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So Paul's conversion experience is marked by an act, the kind of act we saw tonight, a baptism. Very, very simple. For a minute, you're on top of the water. For a second, you're underneath it. And then you come back up. And your life is never looked at the same again. Not by you, not by anybody else. So, since I have a short message tonight, 
I have only two points. The first one is this, is that this is an unexpected and sudden conversion. The conversion of Paul is a conversion of an avowed enemy of Christianity. I mean, think about it. This is like Christopher Dawkins coming to Jesus. Or Stephen Hawking. Or Richard Rohr. Give me some other examples of people you would never expect to come to Jesus. Bill Maher. Oprah Winfrey. What? This is always a risk I take when I ask for people from scum of the earth. William Shatner. Yeah, somebody unlikely. Tom Cruise. John Travolta. Yeah, okay. Oh, geez. Somebody this morning said Kim Kardashian. And uh, somebody goes, she's a Christian. I don't want to get in an argument at all. You know, think of your run-of-the-mill terrorist, you know. <laughs> that would be Unexpected. So what we learn from this is that no one you know is beyond conversion. Nobody. Nobody you know is beyond conversion. Not even our next-door neighbor who hates our guts. I don't know if you know about this, but the $405,000 we just got done spending on refurbing this building was most likely in response to him calling the fire marshal on us. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm in some ways grateful. The building is safer. <laughs> we have more room now. I mean, I think God used it for good, even though it was meant for evil. You know, a year before that, we were in the court. It was Scum of the Earth Church versus the city and county of Denver, Colorado. Why? Uh, for noise violations, because the police had to come here so often based on complaints by a very near next-door neighbor about the praise music that was coming through the wall that the police finally said, we're, uh, we're not going to deal with this anymore. You guys duke it out in court. Now, we had had the decibel meters outside at the building line, I mean, at the property line. We knew we were below levels. Um, <laughs> we have tried to be nice, but it didn't matter. We were in court. We won in the court. A year before that, uh, we were trying to get this building zoned to be a church building again, and the only person who was there to speak against us was our next-door neighbor. Um, and the zoning board voted to make this a church again. Do not think for a second that that man couldn't come to love this church 
because of his love for Jesus or an encounter on a road in a nanosecond. It could happen. Maybe there's somebody you know, somebody in your life, a loved person, a parent, a, a child, um, a neighbor, a schoolmate, a coworker, who does not know Jesus. And they just seem like the farthest away from Jesus of anybody. Don't think for a moment that your prayers are going unanswered. Because the second point is, it could. I'm sorry, hang on. It could, well, the second part of this is it could be total, totally a sudden thing. I mean, we like to think that, that people ramp up, you know, to Christianity. Well, they know a little bit here, and now they learn a little bit more, and now they know a few Christians, and that's kind of great. And, oh, you know what? Now they go to their first church service, and they heard a sermon. They weren't totally turned off. And it's a slow incline. And for some people, it is a slow incline, but it isn't that way for everybody. Some people are like, boom, you're done. Jesus is coming in. He's giving orders. He's taking names. He's kicking butt. Sometimes it happens that way. Don't despair. Paul, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was not ripe for the picking. He was way beyond picking. Get a hard heart. So keep praying for the people that God has laid on your heart. I don't doubt that there were people in the early church praying for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. If I was in danger of being jailed by that guy and killed, I'd be praying for him just to save my own hide. So given that low bar, I'm sure there were others who were praying because they wanted to see the power of God in his life. In the meantime, keep loving those people. Keep sharing the good news with them. Keep praying for them. Now, we've purchased gift cards for our neighbor because we know he loves motorcycles, and so we got him a gift card one Christmas. We didn't put our return address on it because we thought he would rip it up. If you knew it was from us, we just put it in his mailbox, and we pray for him. I mean, if you go by his lawn and there's, there's, there's trash on the outside, pick it up. Let's bless him. Let's bless him. When we are cursed, let us bless, as our namesake verse goes. All right. The second point is this. Paul's was a conversion to go work for the boss. Jesus totally took over on the Damascus Road. I mean, if Paul, Paul had a choice, I'm sure. It wasn't much of a choice. Either stay blind, <laughs> keep withering away because you can't eat or drink, or come to Jesus. I mean... It's not just about your conversion, Paul. Guess what? I have called you for a purpose. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm calling you because i got a job for you to do. 
And I, I don't care who you are. I don't care where you've been. I don't care how you came to Christ. If God called you in Jesus, it's because he wants you to do something. There's a mission for you. It's not just about the relationship. It's about the mission. God is not capricious. He's got a plan. He wants you to be part of it. What is that plan? Find out. He called you for a reason. It's not just so you could grow spiritually you know, indulgent, rate the sermons of the church, decide after a few weeks, I'm not being fed here, and go find someplace else where the praise band is bigger and better and the light show is cooler and the pastor is a better speaker. It's not about you. It's about what Jesus has for you to do. He did not grab you merely for the sake of relationship. It's also about the kingdom of God. He wants you to be a co-worker with him. He is saying to you, you are my chosen instrument. There is no one else that can go the place that you can go. You know, builders have certain tools for certain tasks, right? And an awl is made because sometimes you need an awl and a hammer won't work. God created Saul of Tarsus to spread his gospel to the Gentiles around the world. Let's face it. We all here, unless you're like 100% Jewish and with a Jewish background, we all here owe our conversion to the Apostle Paul in some respect. I mean, the Apostle Paul evangelized all the areas from where my ancestors came from and was passed down generation to generation to generation. And I'm sure that's the same with you. Because Paul was called to a mission. And you're called to a mission. And 2,000 years from now, people, if they knew your name, would be singing your praises because you responded to the mission that Jesus called you for. Even seasoned saints are called to mission. I mean, Paul's brand new, right? So, of course, he's got a mission. But what about Ananias? Ananias was a man been around for a while. He knew the Lord, knew his voice, knew how to talk to him, knew how to talk back to him. And God had a special purpose for Ananias. So maybe you've been a Christian for 20 years, for 40 years. God's got a purpose for you. He's got a mission for you. You're his chosen instrument. So how has God called you? How maybe, like right now, are you at cross purposes with God's intention for your life? Maybe you know that there's something you're supposed to be doing, but your lifestyle is cross-grained to the kinds of things that God wants to do with you. Here's my advice. Don't wait for God to knock you off your donkey. Be more like Ananias. So as we go into the uh, 
study the book of Philippians. Let us begin to have an appreciation for the writer of the book, the Apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus. And let us strive to be imitators of him as he imitates Jesus. Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the baptisms we saw today. Lord, I, I pray for Brian and I pray for Katie that their purpose will be made even more clear to them as a result of them having made a public declaration of allegiance to you. You've called them, Lord, for a reason. Strengthen them and keep appearing them for the task and the reason for which they were apprehended. In Christ's name, amen.